From Madison, Wisconsin, World Dairy Expo presents The Dairy Show, the digital meeting place of the global dairy industry, where we sit down to talk cows, cutting edge technology, and the colored shavings. Welcome back to The Dairy Show, everyone. I am once again your host, Katie Schmidt, and joining us this week on The Dairy Show is Andy Beckel. He is a founder of Golden Calf Company, but he tells me that his real passion lies in engineering and sales. And uh, the company is headquartered out of Northwest Wisconsin. And we are so excited to have Andy here to talk about calf care and colostrum management, especially as we go into uh, these cold winter months here in the upper Midwest. So welcome to the show, Andy. Thanks very much, Katie, for having me. Really appreciate being here. Well, I'm excited. And we covered a little bit about, you know, the basics of who you are. But if you want to take a minute and introduce yourself a little further to our audience, what's your connection to agriculture? How did you get to where you're at today? Sure, Kate, it's a great question. So I grew up milking cows in south, uh, southern Minnesota, close to the Mankato area, on a very small family farm, um, and ultimately evolved out of that. And, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you a quick story about that, actually. The, the whole concept of this whole company, Golden Calf Company, that we'll talk about in our, in what we do, it sort of stems out of this uh, process that I found myself in when I was filing taxes my first time on my Schedule F. And it's really funny because, you know, nobody uses Schedule Fs anymore, at least not the way we used to do it. And ultimately, it was you know, we, we'd always lump all of our pharmaceutical and cost bet bills, everything into one category. And ultimately, I was frustrated because I'd lost money that year. I wasn't making money like I thought I should be making money. My bills were outdoing, you know, what I was bringing in my income. So ended up breaking out the, the bills in the, in, the, in the vet bill section, trying to figure out well, where is all this money going? And at that time, you know, in my youth and lack of wisdom, I was thinking, well, obviously, it must be like everybody else. It's all in the cows because that's where it makes all the money. Right? Cows make most of the money. Therefore, you know, we, uh, we basically are willing to spend money on them. And ultimately, I found the reverse to be true. We spend a lot of money on calf care. And most of it's all Band-Aids, right? It's all trying to fix a problem that we created or we neglected to, to take care of the root of that problem. So I learned at a younger age, uh, as a young adult coming out of college, that we spend on an average area, I truly believe that wasn't just us. We spend a lot of money in the calf sector trying to fix problems that we create or, again, don't, don't address or want to address. Then fast forward many years, uh, no longer milking cows. Me and my wife moved to the northwest, northwoods of Wisconsin. Beautiful here. Love it. Uh, had a small show herd. And uh, eventually we sold that herd and we started this business because nobody at the time was really focusing on 2009, 2010. No, but no company, no big box company anyway, was really trying to focus and address calf care. Because again, I don't think the impression by any means back then was calves were making money and that you weren't probably spending a ton of money. It was the cow sector that you ultimately put the money towards. So we uh, really want to make a difference and tried to figure out what that could be. And I kind of had that light bulb that had already gone off many years back. And that was kind of the, the creation of the Golden Calf Company. So that's, that's kind of where we, that's where I came from is the dairy industry. I'm very fortunate and very blessed to be able to, to stay in it and get to work with the people I know and love and grew up with. So it's been really fun. Tell us a little bit about what kind of things you guys do at Golden Calf Company, just really quick before we dive into the fun stuff. Golden Calf Company, our main focus is uh, the importance of neonatal calf care. And the best thing that we can do for every calf uh, that's born is to give them the best opportunity to thrive. And that's going to be through the means of colostrum. So our flagship product is colostrum management, and that encompasses the equipment, which are typically pasteurizers, is what we mostly sell, but also the means to be able to quickly thaw it out. And then we make uh, all the other products that are associated with it that support, which are going to be your consumable items. So it's going to be like backpacks, making it very easy to feed that colostrum and keep it insulated. It's going to be uh, a case to hold it. 
and it's also going to be the bag itself. And then the two tube feeding tools, uh, nipple feeding tools. So you can choose and do different options for getting that colostrum administered. And let's start with the basics of colostrum management. How are we managing or measuring the quality of colostrum and, and what are the guidelines for feeding and the quantities and the timings of all of that? So testing is, uh, has really evolved. So currently, the current uh, marketplace, if you will, should be embracing digital uh, refractometry testing. So that's going to be a digital readout uh, using refractometers. And the one that we use in our industry is called BRICS, uh, BRICS refractometer. So that's just one of the many, many styles of refractometers that exist uh, in the world. The uh, older ways are some people may still be using some of these. And I'm going to encourage you guys to, and girls out there using them, to consider upgrading with the times with the technology that's evolved. Uh, optical refractometers, which are, again, using the BRICS method, uh, the BRICS scale, I should say. Uh, that's a really great tool, but in the wrong hands, it can be a very unproductive tool or misleading tool. And then there's the very old one, which are, we used to, we call them claustrometers, but they're really simply hydrometers uh, that we adopted into our industry. And what are they measuring? So the BRICS scale tells us what exactly? So the BRICS scale, uh, we don't have enough time to dive into the science side of it, but I am going to, I'm going to dip my toe into it. So the BRICS is simply a measurement that is built for a scale for uh, sucrose measurements. So refractometry is, there are uh, at least 100 different types of refractometers. BRICS just happens to be one of the scales built. Most of us who have worked with our veterinarian on pulling blood serum total proteins for calves, we know that they may be using what's called the clinical refractometer. And clinical refractometers, they have two different scales on them. So they're going to have total proteins and they're going to have uh, urine. For, for animals, uh, for small animals. And so ultimately that is something that they use and that's one type of refractometer. And there's many others. There's gonna be for glycol, uh, there's gonna be for cutting oils, for antifreezes, for, I mean, just about any kind of liquid. I mean, think of it, gems, they use refractometry for gems. Okay, so refractometry is a very, there's a huge scale, uh, lots of different things that gets used for. There was a, a University of Colorado actually, uh, they were the first ones that I can recall that did a study using refractometry. And it was not even for the bovine industry. It was actually for mares, for horses. Because horses' challenge was that they may not have enough colostrum to give uh, a new foal. So they were trying to find other ways to help this problem that they had. And one of them was is that the university, they were actually using a, a refractometer to see whether or not that would even give them an idea. And that's kind of how, in our industry, it was born. Most people don't know this because nobody ever talks about it, but it really came from the, the equine industry. So we can thank the equine industry and the great state of, uh, of Colorado State University for, for that uh, research that was done. And then uh, uh, Vivian Bielman from uh, University of Guelph, she did, a, I believe, the next study. And uh, that really gave uh, a good sense of how accurate these could be to be used in the dairy industry for bovine colostrum. And of course, there's been many others now since that have been done. So that's kind of how we uh, discovered it. But on the science side, it's really interesting because ultimately you don't even need to have a, a BRICS refractometer. You really only need to know the, the origination point. So there's a refractive index. And refractive index is a very long decimal place digit, which is why we don't use it. Because it, you know, to remember that, that uh, minute little detail can be really hard. So the BRICS scale makes it simple or easy for the user interface to interpret these results. So how do we know if we have high quality colostrum and like what's the, the threshold we want to be hitting and then how much should we be feeding and when? I'm going to start at the end and work backwards. The, the, the quantities really, the target is still trying to get in as much as we can into a newborn right after it's born. So for example, if it's a, a larger breed going to be Brown Swiss, Holstein, those breeds we're still trying to target for uh, four liters or four quarts as soon after birth as possible. 
that soon after birth really means exactly that. You know, if it's going to be an hour before you possibly can do it, okay, that's better than the alternative, which is six hours potentially, right? And in our world, we like to say as soon as possible. And if you have our equipment, then that could be as short as 15 to 20 minutes just because of the speed. There is a change that's occurring. Four liters is a great number to use or four quarts uh, to do in that first feeding, but that is starting to change. It has been changing in the industry. I don't think science is necessarily recognizing it. I'm not sure why they're not recognizing it, but we're starting to see a bigger trend towards doing a little bit smaller portions, such as maybe three liters on the first feeding. And then following two to four hours later with a second feeding of two liters on a large breed. And I know there's some debate um, out there about this. You can debate it, I think, all day long, but you're seeing happy customers and uh, happy farmers and happy calves. So I think that this trend is probably going to continue. I still will stand by the four liters just because I don't know when you're going to get back to that calf. Mm -hmm. So if I want the best insurance policy, I'm going to give them the most right up front in volume, uh, regardless of maybe some of the negative effects that maybe some people can identify with, which is why they're switching to uh, a smaller portion, not dramatically small, just, you know, maybe 20, 25% less in volume. On smaller breeds, of course, like jerseys, then you're not going to be feeding them four liters. You're going to be starting with a, with a maximum of probably closer to three liters. I used to actually advocate for four liters. So for those of you listening out there who know me, you know, if, if, you, if my story has changed, it has. Four liters, again, if you're not knowing when you're going to get back to them. The problem with small breeds like a jersey is going to be that they're just not going to want to have a hunger reaction like you and I have within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And we all know that eating 20, eating uh, and having intervals of 24 hour eating periods is just not healthy in general, right? Thank you. Thanksgiving's coming up. That'll be here before we know it. Okay. We all love Thanksgiving. We love family. We love the, the, the catching up with family. We love the food and we will stuff ourselves like pigs before going to market, not knowing it's our last meal. We will be uncomfortable for a good period of time. Most of us, or at least those of us who eat heartily, right. And, and, and don't know when to stop. So we will suffer the consequences and then we won't eat for a while. And this is not healthy for us. And we see this in calves too. I mean, that's why smaller feedings more frequently is better. Uh, so that story has changed for me a little bit. But again, for those of you who are going to be, I can't get, you know, just have a situation where you can't get back to that calf for a long period of time, then feeding more certainly is the right, right choice in that instance. Just remember the calf is going to find its first meal, whether you want it to or not. Ultimately, if you don't get that calf colostrum, she has or he has a hunger reflex when they come out. They are hungry and they need energy. They need calories. So they're going to go after whatever they can get their mouth or tongue on. And if it's what you don't want, like you know, fecal material, they are going to get it. And they don't care because they don't know any better. They have a hunger reflex. So they're just going to start licking, sucking, grabbing. And ultimately, if we're not feeding that calf and fulfilling that need, then they're going to keep searching. So if the longer you wait, the more opportunity you give them to find that manure meal, we call it that you just don't want them to have. Now we'll talk about the quality. And quality is a, it's a really big term for us in our, in our industry and, and in my world. Because quality, you could, pick, you could pick a number, but I can shoot holes in that all day long. So I'll, I'll start with the industry standard. So the industry standard is 22% bricks, if you're using a, refract, a bricks refractometer. For those of us who uh, don't quite understand why we use 22, I'll give you the simple math. The math is, is that there's a direct correlation between a refractometer and using an RID machine to actually test for the titers of the antigens for the antibodies. So when we say feeding 22% bricks is the right number and you shouldn't fall below it, it's because 22% bricks correlates with 50 grams of immunoglobins per liter. 
And the gold standard that we set for ourselves is 200 grams on the first feeding of IgGs. So that's how you come to the math and how we came to establish in the industry 22% bricks. However, that number can be a really deceiving number because maybe I don't have anything much higher than 22%. Or maybe that number is on my low end. And I see that all over the spectrum. I mean, I'll see Jersey breeders who just never really fall below 26% bricks. And so they, you know, they feel like they have this abundancy of great colostrum. And sometimes when we get in that comfort zone, we think, well, I don't need to worry about hygiene as much or timeliness or volume. But that's a, that's a false statement and it's very misleading. So what I'll tell people is I'll, I'll tell them this. I'll say, collect it, test it, identify what kind of quality you have, do the very best with what you have, and you can do some really amazing things. On the flip side of this, if I'm the breeder who's got, let's say, 28% bricks colostrum, and 20, you know, at 26 and a half, that's basically 100 grams of IgGs per liter. So I'm feeding, you know, 400 grams. So at 28%, uh, don't quote me because I don't have my spreadsheet pulled up, but 28% is uh, going to be probably somewhere around 120 grams per liter, give or take. So now I'm feeding even more IgGs. The problem is, is that if I do this way too late, so I wait a couple hours, or maybe I just wait one hour because I just don't think it's a priority. I can't do it or I won't do it. Cat's going to find that manure meal. That's the first meal. It, it's game over, just like Pac-Man. For those of us who played Pac-Man when we were kids, okay, it's game over. We lost, right? So ultimately, the quality isn't, it doesn't determine everything as far as the, the IgG concentrations. I always think of it as just do the very best with what you have, and you can do some amazing things with even low-quality colostrum. I will be willing to tell anybody that if they had even as low as 18 and 19% bricks levels, that they can still use that, but they have to be really good at what they're doing, right? They've got to collect it. If they're going to pasteurize it, they need to pasteurize it and get it chilled and frozen fast. When they are going to go feed the calf, they need to get it warmed up and ready for feeding temperature as quickly as possible so that the calf gets the meal and bacteria can't regrow. So those are really important factors and you can do some really great things with that. But, you know, just because you've got 18 or me, just because you've got 28 or 30 percent bricks, right? 32 percent bricks is 150 IgGs per liter. So 600 grams. That's, I mean, that's a huge inf, you know, infusion in that calf. But you can just you can you can throw that right out the window by just simply saying, well, I'm going to take my you know, lollygag time to get this done to the calf or uh, maybe I, I don't hygienically collect it. I'm using uh, unclean equipment. Maybe I'm putting it into uh, a really hot, you know, if it's, if it's been frozen or cooled and I put it into hot water, I'm using just hot water from the tap, you know, I can damage those IgGs. And, and really, it's, it's not, it's, it could be worse than the 18%, you know, neighbor farm that's working with 18% bricks. It's not a great answer because it's complex, but it's the honest truth that people just need to understand that part of it. Okay, so I, I have two questions related to timing. So number one, if we think about the calf side of it, how fast is the calf losing its ability to absorb those, those antibodies? So within 24 hours, we know from all the research that exists that the calf really loses all of its ability to absorb the, the antibodies directly into the bloodstream through the epithelial cell. I like to tell people that it's a race against time within the first few hours, you know, because in 12 hours, yeah, you've, you've greatly reduced it, but in 12 hours, the calf has found another meal. So I, I always have to remind people, don't, don't, don't focus on, you know, how long could I wait? Think of it as the quicker I, I respond to this, just like an emergency on a family member, the quicker I, I take care of the problem, uh, the better off, the, the higher chance of probability 
my outcome is going to be positive versus negative. But the cast's ability to absorb antibodies will last up to 12 hours or 24 hours. Um, at 12 hours, it's certainly greatly diminished. Um, you know, it could be as low as 50% uh, absorption rates. But it's still, it's a, it's a relative term to use on timing because I've talked with people in the industry over the years who on the research side will claim, you know, well, there's proof in science that, that claims you can wait up to two hours. And this two-hour time frame is based off of that when the calf, uh, after a two-hour period after it's born, it still has this same ability, if it hasn't taken in something, to absorb the antibodies at the same rates. Right. So it's never at 100 percent. Right. So uh, I'll pick an arbitrary number, something like 89 percent or so. So at 89 percent at our at hour zero. Right. So at the moment of birth, at parturition up to, you know, 120 minutes later, if nothing happens, the calf doesn't get a hold of any manure, doesn't lick anything, doesn't take any other meal. Sure. The problem is, is that's living in a pristine perfect world. And I have not yet been on a dairy, even on a research facility that has a lot of dispensable people and labor force um, and money. And even those, even those teams of people will say our facility and the maternity is extremely dirty when it comes to a microscopic level. If we think then on the other side of it, so the cow side of that, there's really, you know, a couple options as far as feeding the colostrum, right? You can do a supplement, you could do mom's milk, or you could do a different cow's colostrum. Correct. Is, is there, you know, something that rises to the top in those options as far as the, the best choice? Or is there, you know, really pros across the board for all of them and cons for all of them too? Yeah, there's pros and cons for all of okay. them. Okay. Uh, you know, you can't beat mom. Michael Van Amberg, Dr. Michael Van Amberg's a super great guy, Cornell University. Uh, I love talking to him about just these things that we deal with. And I think that was his saying to me once, you, you, you can't beat mom. I mean, Mother Nature has got it all figured out. She's got everything packaged together there for the calf. So feeding from dam to calf, from mom to baby is for sure, hands down, everything being perfect in a perfect world is the best way to go, right? You can't beat that. But there's so many challenges with that that are unknown. So we'll go through those. So the, so that, the big pro is that it's mom's milk direct to calf and you can't beat that, right? So herd immunity is going to be the best. Genetically, there could be some influences that can be expressed. And ultimately, mom's packaged in for her baby what it is she wants for her baby to have. Those are three great benefits that are undisputable. But there's some other dirty things, right? So one's going to be, is mom even producing enough for me? Sometimes we milk a cow and there's just nothing there. Or there's so little, you can't do anything with it. Second's going to be, well, again, what's the quality? And the quality is going to range. We're not just talking about IgG concentrations if there's enough to measure with a bricks meter. We're talking about diseases. We're talking about bloody milk. So anybody who sees bloody milk should automatically not want to feed that to a calf. Bloodborne diseases, that's how they travel really easily. So that's a, those are big no-nos. And then now you've got some other challenges, right? So now it's, well, how quick can I actually get that to the calf? So I grew up milking cows. I've been on some very large family operations, very large family operations. On a 30,000 know, milking cow family operation, they have some amazing equipment and some amazing people. And yet they still can't get the job done quick enough when it comes down to how quick we feed those calves. So you think about, you got to get the cow, you got to put the milker on or get the bucket in the milker potentially. Maybe she's getting on a carousel. I mean, this dairy specifically has a carousel, just a mini carousel, but they got to get everybody ready because they're not gonna just going to milk one of those cows. They're going to milk a whole bunch of them. So now maybe the cow has to get milk, but the calf has to wait for that process to happen. Or maybe the reverse opposite is true, right? I can go grab a, a single milker bucket and a cloth, 
that doesn't happen instantaneously. I can't, I'm not, you know, I'm not a genie where I can snap my fingers. So this is going to take 10, 15 minutes, get everything prepped and ready. Then I got to milk the cow. Now we all think for some odd reason in my industry, in our industry, I always, I, I always think it's funny that we, we, we know better, but the milk goes into either a, a bucket that's made of stainless preferably, or possibly a plastic milker bucket, which is cold. And the colostrum is no longer at mom's temperature, right? Mom's got it all prepackaged at what? 101 and a half to 102 and a half degrees, right? Parturition happens. So we add a half a degree because of the stress levels, blah, blah, blah. Well, ultimately we get it in a bucket and then we eventually get it back to an area where we can pour it into a bottle and maybe the bottle's not clean or, or whatever. We're using a funnel. I mean, a lot of, I see a lot of funnels out there, guys okay, and girls. And those funnels look horrible, but we pour it into that bottle and we go feed the calf. Now that colostrum is not even at the right temperature. And again, 20, 30, maybe 40 minutes have elapsed. And, you know, then we get distracted. We start thinking about the cow. We got to take care of the cow, you know, got to get her maybe a calcium bolus or a calcium drench. Maybe I need to do this. And I want to, you know, make sure that she gets back to her pack or her stall. And, and we're forgetting now about what actually is really important at this point, which is, again, the, is the calf because it doesn't have an immune system. It doesn't have any energy. Well, if it's a full-term calf, it's got about 10, it's got about 10% reserve, uh, this brown fat, brown belly fat, we call it, in this abdomen. And mom gives it to her on a full-term calf and she can use it however she wants. But once it's burnt up, it's not replaceable. It's not replenishable. We don't want to use that right now. We want to save that for the next two weeks or three weeks, okay? Especially with cold weather like we're getting up here now. So that's a problem. That's a big con is you can't get the job done fast enough and get it to the calf. And now let's just, you know, we haven't even gotten done with mom's colostrum yet to get to the baby, right? Direct. Because now we've got a problem, which is what happens if she doesn't give me enough? What, what do I do? I probably have two backup solutions. Well, I could have three. Actually, I could have four. We'll go with the worst one, which is we don't feed the calf colostrum. Horrible idea. So that's one option. It's a horrible option. Option two is, is we could wait until another damn calves in and hopefully she gives me enough for two. That's another really bad option because it's unpredictable. And then the, 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 uh, the third option here is going to be to go for a, uh, a supplement. And a supplement is, uh, it's an option that everybody should be thinking about. I don't think any dairy, regardless of size or location, should be not carrying some as a, as a backup plan, you know, a plan B, an, an, a, a backup source for the worst of the worst cases. I'm not saying you need to carry buckets of it, even though I know some, some sales reps out there is hoping for that, which is good for them. Um, but it's, it's an option. You should always keep something on hand. I don't even care what brand. I don't even care what it is because it's not your primary, right? It's, it's your backup plan. It's uh, for those whoopses. It's for those problem days. So that is uh, that is always a good option. And then your last one is going to be having colostrum from another dam collected and frozen. I will go so far as to say you can do it refrigerated, but there's a whole problem with refrigerated colostrum. Nobody's doing bacterial tests on every meal they keep in there. By the time you get the results back, it's already been fed to a calf. So now it's too late to really change the course, right? Now you're just throwing money at a problem, which we talked about when we opened this, right? Just throw some money at it. So the frozen is certainly a really good option. But the, the, the option, I think, three and four, which is either supplement, backup plan, or frozen, those are really your two best backup plans in that, in that, that scenario. So then we can talk about the other two, which is, you know, the supplements. And supplements, so they can be, you know, they can be useful. There are people who have different circumstances, different situations. For those of you who feel that there is another option and this is the best one, as long as you're happy with it. Uh, and then there's the, the other option, which is having frozen from another dam, from your herd. And uh, that's going to be, I think it's a really good option, not just because, of course, that's our business model, but we're embracing mother nature, right? So it's, it's mom's milk from most likely the same herd because you probably collected from a dam in your herd. So you've got a herd immunity and it's relative to that herd specific. 
It's relative to any vaccination protocols that you implement. It's going to be relevant because you're controlling that and you're keeping that colostrum in your herd. And so therefore that benefit keeps passing on from one generation to the next eventually, right? It takes a while, but it does, does occur. And it's a solution that can really improve uh, more than one aspect of the dairy. And when I say that, I mean, the first most impressionable one is going to be the calf is doing well as a calf. So she got immunity. Uh, mom packages in colostrum, a lot of really cool things. The one that we talk about the most is going to be the IgGs, hemoglobins, uh, for just the protection level to carry them for the first couple of weeks. But there's a lot of other things that are in there, some of which we don't know, some of which we have de- identified with. So IGF-1 is a really, really great thing that mom packages in there that you can feed frozen or fresh that you can't get in a bag, in a pouch, in a bucket from from anywhere because you can't replicate what mom has put together. There are some really great things. Um, I'm going to, I could talk about it for a while, but the best thing to do is is to refer people to the internet uh, and have them Google Michael Van Amberg, Cornell University. He did a paper, um, a research uh, with his students, I think now almost four and a half, maybe almost coming up on five years. And that article simply, I'll give you the, the cliff note, feeding colostrum for four days four days after partration, feeding colostrum. And I'll, I'll, I'll caveat that with, it doesn't have to be the first milking because we call it transition milk, but mom still calls it colostrum. So there's, I, there's IgGs in there, but of course they're, they're starting to diminish as, as it normally would be expected, right? So dilution is occurring, but IGF-1 is still at super high levels and the calf has this unique ability because she just came out of mom and she can absorb these things like she was in mom for four days, that same process. But after four days, this ability the calf has goes away and changes. In that study, they averaged three quarters of a pound more rate of gain every single day on the same starters, the same housing, the same environment, same air quality, and same, I believe they were feeding milk replacer. Nothing else changed. Nothing else. And if that doesn't floor you, I don't know. I I wouldn't know how to impress you, at least not in this industry. So again, it kind of, it goes back to, you know, what, what's the best? Well, the best is always going to be from mom direct. If you can establish, she's going to give me enough right away. And I already know that it's going to be good quality from all the aspects we talked about on the quality. And I could do it fairly quickly and get this job done and feed it at the right temperature. You, you take a, a great meal of 32% bricks or 28% bricks, right? So you're feeding 120 to 150 grams per liter and you feed that to a calf and you feed it cold. I mean, all bets are off. I, I'd rather see the guy feed it at the perfect temperature of a 102 to 103 degrees Fahrenheit and it'd be at 18% bricks because the calf is going to do better. And she's not going to burn up that 10% she's born with on a full-term calf just to warm up the meal. Cause you know, sometimes we think that, I don't know what we think sometimes, but you know, it's like we're human and we just make some irrational decisions, but people sometimes feed colder thinking for, I don't know what reason that it's okay. The calf is going to warm that meal back up to body core temperature. And it's the optimum temperature for the antibodies to be absorbed through the epithelial cell. If you feed it, feed it cold, first of all, the calf is going to expel and use up that little bit of energy it's born with just to warm that colostrum up. Now, if you'd have done that for them, they would have kept that for a while until they needed it. And now they have to absorb that colostrum and probably they're just, they're not going to be as receptive to it. You know, think of yourself, you know, you, you get, you get a cold, you get chills. You're not as receptive to things around you, no matter how somebody may present them to you. I mean, they could give you a brand new, you know, car or truck or tractor or combine. And if you have the chills and feel cold and sick, you're not exactly going, this is amazing, right? You're just like, what do I care? I feel horrible right now. So, you know, think about that next time we're trying to to get colostrum to a calf that we're feeding at the right temperature. Well, so we've talked a lot about some of the research that's come out in recent years. And Andy, you mentioned at the beginning that 
when you were farming at home, you didn't realize how much of a loss could be found in calves, whether it was cost or productivity. So let's look ahead. I was going to look back, but let's look ahead. Let's talk about the future of calf management. What is there to look forward to? Like what, where can we still see improvements in our calf care or calf management? I think the best way to answer that is I look at where we were 10 years ago. In the last decade, we have made huge, huge strides forward in calf care. And that starts with colostrum management. So obviously that was huge. Uh, I can tell you firsthand, the last 11 years trying to, of the last 11 years, the first three to four years trying to re-educate dairy farmers. And I'm in that same category because I'm a dairy farmer at heart. That's what I grew up doing and, and loved it. Convincing them of the last three, four, or possibly five generations of how we took care of newborn calves and the method of colostrum administration and where it came from, it was like trying to move a mountain because you have to re-educate them and say, what you've done, what your ancestors have done are all not necessarily wrong, but they're not as good as what they could be. And this is a new, better way what we're doing. And we've made some huge strides for it. I mean, it's just phenomenal. And people are embracing that. I mean, farmers everywhere are embracing it. And they're either seeing others do it, others use our equipment, others uh, see research that comes out about how the importance of colostrum and how important that is for not just the short term, but the long term. I mean, gosh, I remember, Katie, when I was selling this, I was going, oh, look at this. Uh, it was from, the, uh, from a, a research done in, the, in Arizona about brown Swiss and how if we just fed calves more colostrum that they were going to milk more production. And I can tell you, you walk onto a farm and tell them, hey, look, in three years, you might have an ROI. By gosh, that's a tough sell. I mean, I hung my ad on it for a while because that's all I had. But uh, eventually you start to realize that, you know, they want their ROI to be faster. And thank goodness that we can prove that and show the ROI is not just long term, but it's short term. And vice versa, it's not just short term, it's long term. That's the last decade. And moving forward in the next, uh, I can't see forward 10, 10 years. I don't do that. I do, I do like one year, two years, and I extrapolate maybe two or, two or three more. And I think where we're headed is more automation, partly because we're hungry for tech in our industry. We are in, in you know, the, the seven big industries, we are kind of the last to embrace all the technology that all, all of the industries have embraced. With that, we can certainly say that there's going to be more automation on even the calf side. Compound that with a lack of labor or a lack of willingness of labor. Uh, maybe that's a better way to say it in this day and age. And people just not being familiar with agriculture anymore. You know, people are really disconnected. So that poses a challenge in itself because our workforce isn't just smaller. Our workforce is smaller and uneducated as to what our industry even does and what the work will entail. Most of the, I would say not most, maybe not most, but a mass majority of family dairies, regardless of how big or small you are, the people you employ that are not family members, most likely not only didn't grow up on a dairy, they don't even know the first thing about dairy. They don't know how they operate. They don't know what the importance of them are. They don't know the small nuances, ins and outs, or sometimes even just the basics of what we're trying to accomplish here. So uh, that's a, a big thing because you're not just teaching them a task. You're trying to teach them a way of life, uh, you know, husbandry of animals that we would, and, and I think any farmer you ask, we would all say the same thing. We treat them like our own kids, you know? So it's a, that's a, that's a big challenge. And so there, I think the automation, the robotic side is going to lend itself to that more because we don't have to maybe teach some, uh, some of these things in our industry about how to care after them. We can just program it to do a great job caring after them. 
where do you go for resources for the latest on calf care or calf management or colostrum? Are there researchers in the industry that are really kind of paving that way uh, that farmers can learn more from? So, yes, there is. Um, there's less and less focus on colostrum. Um, there just isn't, you know, Michael Vandenberg, I know I mentioned before, but he's a really great guy uh, on both a, on a professional science research uh, level, uh, but also just a, as a good human being, a, a good person to bounce ideas off of and questions. And, um, you know, I think him and I have talked about it and a few others, too, in, in, in that side, on the research side. It's just tough to, you know, somebody has to fund that research. And so there's there's less research now than there was in the last 10 years that's occurring. Um, doesn't mean that there isn't going to be more. That's a challenge. Um, so the research that does get done is really important because ultimately uh, we, we learn so much from essentially so little research. Uh, I will I will say that um, events like uh, ADSA holds a lot of different conferences. I really like going to those. Um, but, you know, there's not as many on neonatal calf care is, is what I would like to see. But understandably, you know, for the guys that are on the cow side, um, you know, they, they got to have those events for them. So, you know, we got to spread it out. So I'm going to give you one last challenge here. And I'm going to have you summarize all of your calf care knowledge into one simple take home message. What do you got? I think that the first thing that everybody needs to think about is you cannot make great cows from crappy calves. And you can't make great calves by starting them off not caring about that first meal and how important that is. Putting a little bit of extra effort, money, and time into the first 20 minutes of their life up to the first four days of their life will pay huge dividends, no doubt. I think that is a fantastic way to summarize everything that we have talked about because we have talked about a lot. So I am so grateful that you took the time on your day today, Andy, to talk with us uh, and for spending yeah, time on the dairy show. You bet. It was my pleasure. I do want to put in a plug for our team. And we uh, are very proud to let dairy farmers everywhere know that we are based out of Northwest Wisconsin and we make everything here in America. We're the only company in our, in our little niche of colostrum management that makes everything in America we're proud of it. Uh, we like supporting uh, our local community. We like supporting our local families. And we. this all stems from the fact that we know that dairy farmers everywhere need and want others in their community to support the local dairy farmers and buy local. And so we embrace this by making sure we produce it locally. So whether it's the calf hero system that they're buying from us, we're making it right at our own facility here in the Northwoods of Wisconsin to the bags, whether it's a two, three, or four liter bag, we're making it in that same facility. And uh, I'm just so proud of our team and uh, being able to do this and get to work with uh, more people locally, but also you know, pass it on to, to dairy farmers. And we're just really proud of that. So I wanna make sure I plug that in. And how fitting for a former family farmer. So that is yeah. a great connection to our industry. So thank you for everything you do, Andy, to support the, the dairy farmers that are family owned and your community and again, Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks so much, Katie, for having me. I really appreciate it, and I had a great time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Dairy Show. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to hit like and subscribe wherever you are listening to us today. And of course, don't forget to tell your friends about how much you are enjoying The Dairy Show we would love to have them join us as well. 
And last but not least, if you have any comments for us, send us an email at WDE at WDEXPO.com. We would love to hear from you. 